You're listening to Strange by Nature, your guide to the strange, weird, unbelievable, and improbable wonders of the natural world. Thanks for being here today. I am Kirk Mona, and I am joined today by Rachel Ginza and Victoria Thompson. We are all professional naturalists who together have scoured the world for weird and wonderful wonders just to please your mammalian brain's desire for novelty. Isn't that nice? Let's do this. All right, everyone. I get to start us off this week. So uh, I'm pretty excited. Okay, so this is something that kind of came up recently for me and I was just like hmm I wonder so it's one of those topics um so out in the wide weird world of nature uh there's a wide variety of creatures right Mm -hmm, Um, correct and a big distinction uh grouping for animals at least is backbone or no backbone or invertebrates yeah Uh, yeah that's kind of the big one that's a pretty big one right um, another difference between those groups is, that developed kind of after this split uh, was what kind of eye you have. Mm-hmm. Okay, so compound okay. eyes okay. are interesting and fascinating in their own right, but I actually wanted to talk about the camera eye today, uh, which tends to be in animals with backbones. So a camera eye okay. are the eyes that humans and a lot of other animals that have backbones have. And it works just like a camera. All right. There's the colored part. You put film in the back. Right. And then. And then your brain develops it and you see the image in front of you. Yeah. Like a week later. Exactly. Um, (laughs) So the colored part of the eye, how it kind of works is the iris, the colored part of the eye, is a muscle that actually controls the size of the pupil. Uh, The pupil is pretty much the hole that light goes through uh, to get to the receptors of the back of your eye and your retina. Um, it contracts yep. with more light and dilates or gets bigger with less light. Um, mm-hmm. But what really made me choose this topic was that not all animals have the same shape of pupil. This is true. Ooh, yeah. yeah. Interesting. And I was curious why there's different pupil shapes and why some animals have really bizarre pupil shapes. So uh, let's get into it. I'm interested to hear about this. So the first one I'm going to talk about a little bit is a vertical slit. So you often see these in animals. These are adapted for uh, animals that are low to the ground. So like foxes, or maybe if you're at home, your lovely cat, if you have one. Um, Mm -hmm. They're low to the ground and they're ambush predators. The vertical slit allows them to be able to more accurately judge the distance to prey. So it allows them to have a little more focused vision, and it evo- okay. but it also allows things like grass to be a little more blurred. So they're more focused on prey shapes rather than huh. uh, like grass or trees because they are predators. Um, vertical animals with vertical slits also tend to be more nocturnal hunters. Uh, so not only they're ambush predators, but they're animals that will hunt at night as well. So if you think about like a fox, they tend to be a little more active in the crepuscular time period or at night. Same with cats. They're a lot more active at night. Um, mm-hmm. However, it's not all cats. Uh, there seems to be a height limit. Um, 
for having vertical slits. Um, and obviously this doesn't count for every single animal. There are some animals where it's, uh, there is an exception to every single rule as we have discovered in this podcast. <laughs> um, so round pupils like humans uh, tend to be animals that chase down their prey. So instead of ambushing uh, and getting up really close, they're, they are, they are taller and they tend to be actively chasing down their prey. So these are like larger animals like tigers or lions or wolves Um Humans mm -hmm. all have round pupils and it allows for a more even focus across our field of vision. So we don't, but on the downside of that, we don't necessarily have good transition between light changes. So, I mean, if you ever go from a really bright space to a really dark space, it takes a few minutes for your eyes to adjust. Whereas with like right. vertical slit, you're able to adjust a lot faster. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah, I've heard another another way of saying that too. I've heard is that there's like more dynamic range mm -hmm. the vertical slit gives. So it's like uh, that's just, it's it's so it's so weird to even think about because we it's not what we have exactly. So it's easy, so easy to assume that what we have is like oh that's normal, but no. not necessarily. Yeah, um, there's another kind. There's a couple other kinds of pupils that I want to talk about. There's horizontal pupils, which like are goats, 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 horses. Yeah. Deer have them. Uh, generally speaking, they are prey animals, and it seems to allow for a wide panoramic view of the horizon. Um, okay. So their vision necessarily isn't that sharp on the like sides on the peripheral type vision, but it allows them to see a much wider frame. Now, what makes it extra weird to have horizontal vision is the their eyes, in order to keep horizontal to the horizon and keep parallel, their eyes rotate in their head as they, like, if, a, if as animals graze, like a deer or a cow or a horse, their pupils right. will, their eyes in their head will rotate the opposite way to keep their pupils horizontal to the horizon. Oh, it's like a level. Uh-huh. Weird. I did not realize they did that. No. That is very cool. Uh-huh. I, I feel like huh. I had learned it before, but it didn't connect. So it's and, actually, <sighs> I want to clarify. So it's not that they're uh, like moving up and down, like it's twisting side to side. Yeah. So like pivot, pivoting? if you oh, lower wow. your head, it, it as like a deer lowers its head to the ground, their eyes are rotating backwards to keep them yeah. parallel to the ground. Weird. Okay, but the, so so that's like us just looking up and like moving our eyes up and down in our head. Like we have that same ability. Sort of, yeah. Versus, I, I was asking, like, does it like if they t tip their head to the side, does it like turn? Yeah, you know, it does. Stay level. Oh, okay, that's even weirder. Because <laughs> that's something that we we can look left, right, up, down, but we can't rotate our eyes at all. Yeah, they're they're rotating their eyes. Oh. Yeah. Gosh, that's weird. It's very weird. And you know, I, I actually had never really noticed before that horses and cows had horizontal pupils. I think because their irises tend to be very dark brown, yeah. almost black, so you don't notice yeah. the difference mm -hmm. A between lot, the some pupil of the papers, and the iris. Yeah, some of the papers, uh, one of the papers in particular, noted that it was really hard to be able to decipher because they had such dark eyes. Um, yeah. So it's not something that is noticed a lot. 
Um, another but goats, you notice it on goats. You very much notice <laughs> oh, yeah. it on goats. <laughs> um, another weird pupil shape is a W-shaped pupil. What? It looks like a W oh, or I've a, seen those. Or, a yeah. w, or like a, it's also called, I think, a dumbbell-shaped pupil. Um, these are most common seen in cuttlefish or octopus. Oh, right. I guess mm-hmm. I have seen a picture of that. Yeah, there it is. So they're bizarre. so weird. That is their pupil. Everyone has got to like, s- s- while you're listening, bring up a browser or something and check out a cuttlefish eye because it oh, is I'll, so weird. I'll post it on our social media. Although, there you go. Side go note, cuttlefish and octopus obviously do not have backbones. They do not. And there's there's no. a lot of interesting stuff out there about how the cephalopod eye evolved versus the vertebrate eye oh yeah oh yeah yeah um so the thing about the w-shaped eye um what scientists have been able to figure out is that it allows light to be able to come in and hit the retina of their eye at multiple angles to boost image contrast and distance as well as be able to have the benefits that come with crescent shaped pupils that I will talk about in a minute. Um, Like I said, they're mostly found in cuttlefish and octopus, which is really interesting because they're generally thought to only be able to see in grayscale. They can only see in black and white. They can't see in color. They don't have rods and cones or like as many as they have one. Yeah, well, I mean, that kind of makes sense because if you think about like the cat you were talking about, how they want to have that slit because they have that crepuscular vision and they want to see in really low light. Mm-hmm. Um, having black and white vision also super helps you in low light to be able to make all those fine distinctions of, you know, gradients of light. Exactly. So having like a real, like a, a slit pupil makes total sense if you want to maximize your, you know, low light vision. So that's, yeah. that's cool. Um, okay. But yeah, I'm going to go off on a tangent here. Sure. Which Kirk, you can edit out if you need to, but uh octopus especially you're known for being really good camouflagers Uh uh-huh uh-huh and matching the color Uh uh-huh of their surroundings but if they can't see in color (laughs) see where you're going with it how how does that work what a good question i think they're able to tell the differences from what i was able to see uh from the research that i was all the different things i was reading it seems that scientists have understood that because they're able to see uh, a lot more contrast in colors in the different shades of gray, they're able to match them. But there's a lot of research still going on on how they're able to do that kind of Mm. camouflage, even though they can't see those colors. Yeah. Yeah. Wow, that's cool. Okay. To be continued on a a further episode. Absolutely. A um, couple more for you. Uh, crescent-shaped pupils are often found in sea creatures like fish. Um, this allows the uh, the animal to not only be able to see predators, but they're also able to see prey. It kind of combines the horizontal and vertical slits a little bit, so that way they have the benefits of both of those pupils. But the yeah. crescent actually helps reduce the effect of light distortion in the water. So they're better able to see the distance of like their predators and prey. Wow. Interesting. In the water. Uh, And W-shaped pupils actually have that same trait. Uh, 
they're able to sure it's like two crescents exactly so they're able to um reduce that effect which is amazing um and then the last one i don't really know why it's this shape but i thought this was really fun while it, was, it made me go i'm sorry what um some toads specifically the yellow-bellied toad have heart-shaped pupils wow didn't know that don't really know why but it's really fascinating don't some other toads have like diamond shaped mm-hmm. pupils? You're yeah. getting to that probably. Sorry. I am not actually. That is okay. <laughs> all the different pupils that I was going to cover today because I Okay. Th- there's so many different shapes and they all have different Oh, there's so there's so many. Yeah, it's so cool. <laughs> but these are some of the bigger ones that are out there. So Yeah. And that's all I have for you today. I'll never look at eyes the same way. Oh my gosh, Kirk. (laughs) With my little round pupils. (laughs) All right, we're going to go to a break, and when we come back, it'll be Victoria. Strange by Nature podcast is brought to you by listeners like you who have joined the Society of Strange, our membership group on over at patreon.com slash strangebynature. Society of Strange members can join at one of three different membership levels and help support the show and also get some fun stuff like water bottle stickers or access to a super secret content. So a thank you to those who have joined already to help make this podcast possible. If you haven't joined yet, we'll see you soon over at the Society of Strange at patreon.com slash strangebynature. See you soon. So I was actually going to do an entirely different topic this week. Oh my goodness. I randomly saw something about this on my Facebook feed and I was like, this is it. it. Gotta do it. Oh yeah. Gotta do it. I love those moments. Happens all the time. Yeah. Uh, Here in Minnesota, we often, as you know, get strong thunderstorms in the summer, like like many places. And, you know, I've many times been woken up in the middle of the night by a big crash of thunder and lightning. I'm sure that's probably happened to you too. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I might be awake for half an hour or whatever, and then the storm will die down and I'll go back to sleep. Um, And my kids, now that they're toddlers, are starting to freak out more about thunderstorms. I don't blame them. They're terrifying. Yeah. And I know a lot of dogs have a lot of Uh (laughs) problems with thunder and lightning. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know about the dogs, but the people of Lake Maracaibo in Venezuela have had to get used to lightning because they live in the most lightning struck place on earth. What? Awesome. Cool. Yep. Uh, it occurs up to 300 days per year for up to nine hours a night. Oh, absolutely (laughs) not. I'm not moving there ever. Awesome. Uh, about 28 lightning strikes per minute on average. That's about every two seconds. I'm in. I'm in. Sign me up. I'm not. I'm All out. All night for I most of it. the year. Nope. <laughs> I'm out. Bye. <laughs> well, we have some some differing reactions here among our. I mean, in all fairness, I'm also I'm also a like trained storm spotter. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I, I I find storms and lightning fascinating. I think they're fascinating. From a very safe distance where I am not present. <laughs> well, that's that's kind of the idea. You don't want to put yourself in harm's way, but go on. Please. Okay, so have either of you heard of this that I'm talking about before? No. 
It rings a bell. Okay. I know there's a couple of locations that are very lightning-y, and I don't know if this is the one that I've heard of. So I'm Probably. Really I think this is the one. Uh, so first, just a little geographic orientation. Lake Baracaibo used to be a true lake, and it's actually one of the oldest lakes in the world. They estimate 20 to 36 million years old. Oh, my goodness. Whoa. Yeah. But it is now uh, a lagoon or an inlet of the Caribbean Sea. So this is at the northern tip of South America, and it's near Venezuela's border with Colombia. Okay. It's in Venezuela. Right, right. And the Gulf of Venezuela connects um, via a narrow strait to Lake Maracaibo. It's a very large lake. It's about uh, 13,000 square kilometers or 5,000 square miles. <clears throat> okay. And the whole lake is surrounded by a, a flat marshy area, and it's, led by, uh, it's fed by many rivers, um, the largest of which is called the Catatumbo, which enters from the southwest. So this lightning occurs in a very specific area where the Catatumbo River empties into Lake Maracaibo. And so this phenomenon is called the Catatumbo lightning, um, Relampago del Catatumbo in Spanish. And nice. it's like, you can look up videos of this online. It's just like, it's just nonstop, just lightning, 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 lightning. Um, just lighting up the whole sky. And actually, uh, an alternate name for it is the Beacon of Maracaibo, or the Maracaibo okay. Beacon, because it, it almost acts like a lighthouse oh, for navigation wow. right. in the area. So the, the really weird thing about this is its consistency, because yeah. normally, you know, storms come and storms go, and lightning strikes in yeah, very random places. 300 right. days a year, that's yeah. a lot. That's pretty consistent, yeah. So what's up? So it seems to be a trick of geography, climate, and wind patterns. First, the area around Lake Maracaibo, as I mentioned, is this broad, flat, marshy basin. But then around the basin, on three sides are mountains, pretty tall mountains. Mm -hmm. And the only opening in the mountains is where the lake opens into the Gulf of Venezuela. And obviously, this area is tropical, and the lake is partly fed by the warm Caribbean, and so there's just a whole lot of warm, moist air over the lake. And as night falls, winds start to push the warm air up against the mountains, and as it rises, this instability causes lightning storms as the the water and the moist air collides with ice crystals in the cold air. Obviously, we had an episode about Um, lightning. lightning. Yeah, I'm I'm going back. I actually... Anytime. I actually listened to another podcast that talked from with a, a fulminologist who is ologies and it was so good and I learned a lot. But yeah, it's lightning is insane. <laughs> yeah. Uh and so in particular, the reason that this lightning seems to be so consistent is that there is a a jet of wind. It's not as big as the jet stream, but you can Think of it a little bit like that at a much lower altitude. Okay. And it's called the Maracaibo Basin Nocturnal Low-Level Jet. So it happens at night. It's nocturnal. And it just always goes in the same direction, direction, and it pushes that humid air to the south up against the mountains. And that that just happens pretty much every night. And the So the lightning only pretty much stops in the dry season, which is um, in the summer. Mm-hmm. The, the South American summer. Okay. I guess that's, no, that's above the equator. So I guess it's, it's in January, like January, I think is the dry season. Okay. <clears throat> okay. 
So what makes all of this extra crazy is that the Maracaibo Basin is home to about a quarter of Venezuela's population. <laughs> what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, no. So that's like then? five to seven million people. Oh, my goodness. <clears throat> yeah. And it's also the main location of Venezuela's oil deposits. Ah. You may know Venezuela is a, a petro economy. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. Makes a little more so, sense. And yeah. yeah. There's also a large fishery there. About 20,000 people make their living as fisher people. And around dusk is actually... Not a, at night. Well, around dusk is apparently the best time to catch fish. So... Oh, good. I suppose, yeah. So yeah. you're and racing the storm. Also a good time to go for a pleasure cruise uh, in eel-infested waters. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Funny you should mention that. What? Um, <laughs> what? What do you mean? <laughs> <laughs> Why is it funny I should mention that? <laughs> well, you'll find out later. Uh, okay, okay. Just, oh, we're just totally going to cut this part out. Um <laughs> I think it has to do with next week's episode. Yes. Oh. <laughs> cool. So actually, a lot of these uh, poor fisher people live in stilt houses that are built out on the lake. Oh, sure. Okay. So as you can imagine, this is all a volatile combination. It was How- really... I, I could not find what I would consider accurate statistics. Mm-hmm. But one source I said I read said that about three people are killed by lightning each year in the area. That's a lot. Um, Yikes! No, thank you. Yeah. So the average number of people killed by lightning in the whole United States each year is forty-nine. So that's about a f- three to four times higher rate. Yeah, okay. and I'm not leaving here over that. So yeah. Yeah, and obviously the number of people killed is much smaller than the number of presumably injured each year by lightning. So. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a bit of a volatile place to live, and uh, Maybe a I mean bit. it would. Yeah, it's interesting because I was reading. Uh, there was one of the websites I was reading had a just a first person account of kind of observing the Maracaibo lightning and being like, normally you would be really scared when there's lightning, but when it's just this constant, you just kind of like look at it and you're like, wow, that's really cool, and it it sort of doesn't almost doesn't register as something scary when it's happening so much, which uh-huh. I could kind of see. I I guess yeah. A lot of yeah. things get normalized. It's just, it's just part of your exposure. life. Yeah. It's amazing what you end up being comfortable with because it's there every day. Like we live in a pretty cold place in the winter and I'm, I walk outside. And I'm like, oh, you know what? It's uh, it's only 30 below zero or below freezing today. Yeah. You know, it's like two degrees. What a nice day. Mm-hmm. And if you're not from here, you'd be like, you have you lost your mind? <laughs> it is so cold. And I'm like, oh, hey, it's it's 20 degrees warmer than yesterday. You and know, it's sunny. It's, mm-hmm. You get used to that kind of thing. Like, yeah. Oh, hey, it's sunny. Uh, I didn't wear a coat a couple, like uh, last week because it was like, I think it was above freezing. It was like 40 degrees. And I'm like, oh, this yeah. is amazing. It's just wearing a sweatshirt. But if that, See, lightning, doesn't, lightning doesn't sound so bad. I but guess. when you get that weather in October, you're freezing. Of course. It's funny how the body adjusts. Anyway, uh, yeah, so would be a really cool place to visit. Probably, I don't, I don't imagine that I'm probably ever going to visit there, but it would be really cool. Uh, and <laughs> Kirk, that's what go. I have for you today. Thanks, Victoria. Awesome. Thanks for sharing. I'll when take we that come off back... my list of places to move. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Uh, when we come back from the break, it will be Kirk. Yes, it mm-hmm. will.
So, you know, we all talk on the show about how we have all worked as professional naturalists. But one thing I don't know that I've ever mentioned uh, is that I'm also a federally licensed bird bander. So bird banding is when you catch wild birds and put like a metal identification band on the bird's leg so they can be tracked and uh, like recorded to see if they're ever encountered again. It's something you have to have a lot of training and like a license to do. Uh, so don't just think you can run out and do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I feel very fortunate to be able to take part in like research projects and learn more about birds and bird migration. And I actually this year had a cool recovery of a bird that I banded. Uh, fairly, relatively recently, I banded a female purple finch. Ooh. Uh, Ooh. This was in the wintertime. And then over a year later, that same bird that I had banded here in Minnesota was recaptured uh, up in Canada. Ooh. But it wasn't captured straight north of where we live in Minnesota, it was caught in the mountains near Vancouver. Oh, wow. It went 1,700 miles northwest of my banding station and just happened to be re-caught kind of in the middle of nowhere, which is super, super cool. That's very cool. So I wonder how often little birds like that cross the Rockies. Uh, Well, I mean, yeah, it had to cross uh, the Rockies, probably the Canadian Rockies when Mm -hmm. it was up there. Mm -hmm. And it was... um, finches in particular do a lot of uh, east-west migration in search of food. All migration is is food-based, but uh, a lot of the winter finches will uh, go in search of cone crops uh, for whatever region they're good in. And so it's not necessarily a north-south migration like we classically think of. Okay. Uh, But that's an aside. Um, The public sometimes asks us, like, what birds think about the banding process. Which I it's sort of like I, I'm not really <laughs> I, sure. I, I'm I can't not a, ask them directly. They love it. I can't yeah, wait to be it. banded. This is so fun. I love right. being banded. They love banded. having a human hold on to them and stuff. Uh, Big you know, old I, we can't ask the birds thing. directly. Yeah, I, well, I, uh, I'd probably look pretty strange to them. Mm-hmm. It seems a lot of the birds we work with don't seem too bothered by the process. You can literally band a black-capped chickadee and let it go, and then catch it in the exact same trap a few minutes later. They just go yeah. right back in. So there's two possibilities. One is that there's quality food in the trap and they figure it's it's worth the risk to go back inside. After all, they survived unharmed in the first time and maybe these humans aren't that bad. Uh, of course, the other option is that uh, maybe they just aren't that smart. <laughs> That's what I thought. <laughs> and, yeah, and they're, they're not making a connection between the trap and the food. That, that very mm-hmm. well could be as well. Um, so I, I don't know which one it is, but there are chickadees that will just fly like straight back into a trap for more food. Now, larger birds, though, are more interesting. Uh, we do ban blue jays, mm-hmm. uh, but it isn't terribly common that we recapture them again. They seem to know not to go into the trap a second time, and it's possible that they remember it for uh, quite a while. Mm-hmm. Uh, they may migrate away, but then come back next year, and I kind of feel like maybe they remember and avoid the trap, because I think we tend to catch more younger birds than old birds when it comes to blue jays. Yeah. And blue jays are, cor- are corvids. Right. Uh, that's... That's Corvid with an R, not to be confused with COVID. Right. Uh, but the family Corvidae uh, has a number of birds in it that will be familiar to our listeners. So the Corvids include all the various jay species from the gray jays in the north to the pinion jays and Florida scrub jays in the south. Uh, it also includes magpies, crows, and ravens. Mm-hmm. And for our listeners across the pond, it also includes like rooks and jackdaws. Mm-hmm. So... And like more around the world, like corvids are found all over the yeah. place and have incredible, and they're you know, diversity. So smart, just crazy yeah. clever. They are wicked smart, and that's part of what I. That's kind of my topic today is how smart corvids are. Yay! Uh, 
Yay. They actually, interestingly, they are the largest of the songbirds. We don't think about corvids as nope. being songbirds, nope. but they are. They are songbirds, and they're thought to be the most intelligent as well. Huh. The story, there's a specific Hold story on. I want to tell so you. So wait, wait, uh, wait. A crow yeah. is a songbird? Absolutely. Yep. Huh. I kind of knew that, it's classified. don't seem like they so should be. get really nerd. Okay, let's get all nerdy about this. Like, okay. from an evolutionary <laughs> standpoint, they're classified as um, passerines, mm. and the passerines are the songbirds. Okay. Uh, and so they're... They are related to the rest of the songbirds, even though we don't really think of them that way. Mm-hmm. So back on track. The specific story I want to tell you about is some research, again, research uh, that some bird banders did back in 2009 that involved crows. So they were curious about that question I said people often ask about how do the crows feel about being banded? Mm-hmm. And would they remember the person who banded them? <laughs> so... The way they did this is they had the bird banders because they used various banders, mm-hmm. but they all wore the same rubber mask Horrible. while banding. Horrible. And I totally <laughs> want to know. I One thing I could not find is what was the mask? Was it like mm-hmm. a, you know, was it I like a I've Nixon mask story, or something? Actually, like, yeah. I, what was it? Yeah. But they all wore the same mask. And what they found is that no matter who actually, you know, uh, you know, banded it, well, obviously, by design, whoever banded it always looked the same to the crows. Mm-hmm. That was the idea. They only saw one face. So the researchers then wanted to see how the crows reacted to that face in the future once they've been let go. Because, you know, the banding process is, you know, you get caught and you're like, oh, I don't like this. And you got to be it's, held on to have the band put on. It's stressful. It's probably not their favorite thing. We try to minimize stress and make sure that we're not harming the birds in any way. But, you know, especially a very intelligent bird is going to be like, well, I'd prefer not to do that again. Mm-hmm. And the researchers wanted to see how far into the future crows reacted to that face. And what they found, kind of jumped into the conclusion, is that crows were able to recognize the face of the bander up to 2.7 years later. Which is Whoa. <laughs> wild. Yeah. Uh, so the way they determined the crows were recognizing the face was through their actions. So they'd make like aggressive calls, show agitated behavior, maybe even do some harassing of, of people and whatnot. Okay. Um, when, and they would do this when they saw someone wearing that mask. They tested a whole bunch of variables. Uh, it wasn't that they uh, just didn't like masks because they didn't show any reaction to this particular mask prior to banding. Mm-hmm. You know, people just walk around wearing this mask and like the crows didn't care. Mm-hmm. It was only after the banding. Um, and they also had people walking around wearing different masks after the banding and the crows didn't care. Okay. Uh, they were also were, the crows were even able to pick out like one person wearing the mask if they had a crowd of people go walking through. Mm-hmm. The crows wouldn't care, but if one person in that crowd was wearing the mask, they could recognize that face amongst the crowd and would go nuts. That's so that is just whoa, so cool. That's very uh, it's, smart. It's, it's, yeah, it's like an incredible example of how intelligent members of this like uh, corvid family are. Uh, the research article that this came from, by the way, is called Lasting Recognition of Threatening People by Wild American Crows. And it was published in March 2010 in the journal Animal Behavior, if you want to check mm-hmm. it out. Now, I already knew about this research, but while uh, searching for the particular article because I wanted to brush up on it, I came across three other interesting crow intelligent facts that I was unaware of that I wanted to share about. Um, separate research has shown that when seeking out food and when given three-dimensional clues... Crows are more clever and more successful than both dogs and cats at finding the food <laughs> based on three-dimensional clues. 
Uh, mm. So that's super cool that crows are smarter than dogs and cats, at least huh. at least in that particular way. Um, yet other studies have suggested that um, crows are just as intelligent as great apes, such as gorillas, which wow. yeah. usually think of like the higher higher primates as being like kind of the epitome of intelligence. But nope, they're right up there. Okay. Uh, and then there was another study that shows that crows can not only recognize human faces, which we kind of got from this study I was talking about in 2010, but they've actually shown that crows can recognize human facial expressions oh. and change their, change their behavior based on what emotion the human is showing. Huh. Wow. Which is mind-blowing. Think about the amount of cognitive like yeah. gymnastics going on there to be able to recognize emo there's emotions. That's something in another species. Yeah. Humans struggle with, right? So like that was uh, pretty amazing. Like go crows, awesome. Yeah. I, mean, uh, I feel like humans can often sort of understand facial emotions in other mammals. But once yeah, you get into yeah, another vertebrate class, especially. yeah, dogs especially. Mm -hmm. Um but once you get into another vertebrate class, class like birds, I think most of us are not not able to do that. So mm -hmm. that's really right. impressive of the crows. There's like there's like photos out there of like there's an angry bluebird or something, but it's yeah. like that's just us, you know. Yeah, that's just the way its face is made. It has right. resting yeah. bluebird face. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> that's that's great. Amazing, amazing. Oh. Yeah, we should even talk about it on the show. I think there was some research showing that especially dogs um, have different facial expressions than like wolves and mm -hmm. coyotes and foxes and stuff because they actually um, are better at making faces for humans mm -hmm. in order to communicate with humans yeah. about their, their state, which oh. That'd be it, it, animal wow. intelligence is such a cool topic. There's actually a ton of other research that's been done on crows mm -hmm. and their intelligence. This was just sort of, yeah. A few things I wanted to call out. And I, I think for sure, we're gonna, I'm going to put this back on my list. It's coming off and then whoop, going right back on. Mm -hmm. We're going to have to do like sort of a crow redux and dive in even deeper into some of the other research that's been done to figure out how smart they are because they are, uh, yeah, they're amazing. Well, I mean, go ahead, Victoria. Oh, I was just going to say that uh, captive crows actually can learn to talk. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> they're amazing, you guys. They really so are. Like, there's a I, maybe because they're not like brightly colored. I think people are like, "Oh, it's just a crow." Or you hear that too by blackbirds, like, "Oh, it's just a blackbird." Mm -hmm. But like, when you have, when you look at the actual intelligence, these animals are are amazing. So we will we'll be coming back to them again at a future episode, mm -hmm. and uh, I'm just gonna reserve all the other little tidbits for then. All right. Yeah. Thanks, well, Kirk. cool topic. Thanks, Kirk. Yeah. Thank you to you know the two of you for being here, and thank you to all our audience for tuning in. We. Uh, I mean, we could do this without you, but it'd be pretty pointless. It would just be the three of us. <laughs> right. Just sharing fun things. Talking. So, yeah, Which I mean, we that's do fun. anyway. <laughs> but it's more fun uh, with all of you. And, mm -hmm. you know, if you have questions and comments and stuff, too, please reach out to us because uh, it's always fun to uh, hear from our audience. So thank you. Yeah. See you all next week. See you next week. See you next week. Thanks, everyone, for listening to today's show. Be sure to subscribe. New episodes drop every Wednesday, and we love sharing this strange world with all of our listeners. If you would be so kind as to leave us a five-star review, that would be great. It lets other lovers of the strange discover the show. 
You can reach out to us on social media by searching for Strange by Nature Podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can send us an email as well. Our address is contact at strangebynaturepodcast.com. If you want more information about the show, you can also check out our website, which is strangebynaturepodcast.com. Until next week, get outside, stay curious, and embrace the strange.